You are listening to Calvary Spokane's Prophecy Update series, What's the World Coming to? Good morning and welcome. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 12, and I want to begin reading in verse 1. And if you don't mind, would you please stand with me as we read this together? And if you don't have a Bible, there may be one lying in a pew near you. If not, feel free to just kind of sidle up to the person next to you that you've never met before and read over their shoulder. It begins in verse 1 as follows. It says, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. And she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven, and an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a a male child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days, which comes out to three and a half years. And there was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we continue our look at the events of the end times that your Holy Spirit would continue to instruct us, Lord. I pray that you'd help me to uh, present these things with simple clarity, Lord, that we might grasp and understand the truth, that you would lead us uh, as we look at what the future holds and the place that you would have us to fulfill in that future. We pray for your blessing and for your grace, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The evening, just hours before Jesus was arrested, he was asked by the disciples a question, which honestly we're still asking, at least in part, and is the basis for this whole series of studies, which we call What the World is Coming to. But in verse 3 of chapter 24 in Matthew's gospel, it says, they ask, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Many of us have wondered, both Christians and even non-Christians wonder where the world will end. We even have astronomers and others who tell us that the universe is so old and eventually will burn out and then we will all perish. And so we all begin to look closely as our our watches realizing we only have 1.3 million years left. But it's a concern that we have as Christians as well because as we look at events progressing and one of the things I've been trying to convince you of through these presentations is that we are in the midst of that period which we call the end times. That if we look at it, we begin to wonder what will be the day of his coming. And we have many people who like to prognosticate based upon sometimes some really kind of questionable data or basis of interpretation. But one of the things I want to suggest to you is that the timing of these events is critically important, but yet Jesus made it very clear that we will never know the day or the hour. 
That day will come unexpectedly, and yet he gives us certain indicators or signs of the times. In fact, he refers to them as birth pains, like the idea of a woman who is coming to the hour of her birth, the birth of the child, that so also the world that we live in will go through a progression like that. Now timing was something that clearly was very important to God. In fact, in John's Gospel we find that seven times Jesus talks about the time of his deliverance as the sacrifice for our sins. Six times of those seven he says, it is not the time, it is not the time, it is not the time. In other words, we find people who are trying to hurry the events that the Bible predicted. But finally, in John 14, as he is getting ready to be arrested, right around the same time that he's having this conversation with the apostles, he says, my time has now come. And shortly after, he was arrested, and a few days later, he was crucified. And this is all quite significant, because we have to understand that God has a sense of time, and yet, something that we read in the, in the book of Chronicles, he says that, he says, if my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I will hear from heaven. And we begin to realize that timing may not be as fixed as sometimes we think. In fact, when King Josiah realized that Israel had sinned against the Lord and judgment was coming as a consequence, he cried out to God and God said, because you have called out to me and humbled yourself before me, I will not bring that judgment in your day, but it will come after your time. And so in very well, very real sense, God's mercy towards the kingdom of Judah was extended and stretched. And I often wonder if there aren't those same capacities living within his church today. I don't know. Because on one hand, I'm very anxious for the Lord to come and to go be with him for eternity. If the rapture of the church happened today, it would not be in any way too soon for me. Some of you may still feel like you have got something to accomplish, but you're wrong. <laughs> but at the same time, I think about so many people that are on my wife and I's daily prayer list who have not yet trusted the Savior, and that really weighs heavily upon our hearts. Come quickly, Lord, but only after you have saved those that we love and care for. And I think when you look at the events of history, you realize that there are often these pivot points in history. In fact, biblically, I think there is a, a pivotal moment where God will move one way or the other based upon the response of the church to those events. That when the church begins to seek God, I mean seriously begins to draw near to the Lord, we become people of prayer, we become people of his word, we become people of worship and witness that somehow that has a positive influence because the church is called to be salt and light. Salt is a preservative. Light is an enlightened thing that opens the eyes. And he says, we've been called to be that in our culture. And when Christians really begin to engage in the culture instead of just simply accommodating the culture, they, I believe, can really retard the deterioration of a culture and even turn a nation away from destructive pathways and save it. And I say that because I think there's a kind of a fatalism in the mind of many Christians regarding last day's events, kind of like, well, it's fixed and it's gonna happen in this way and there's nothing we can do about it. But God in his amazing grace and his sovereign ability has sovereignly ordained that you and I should have a degree of personal sovereignty. That yeah, he controls all of the events and he knows the exact day and the hour, but it's not necessarily that God is going to make that day come because without regard to those people who call upon his name, that if we call from heaven, if we begin to seek God, God can move in time in ways that can be significant, I believe. That's my own point of view. 
But when Jesus was asked this question, he began to give them a, a list of bad things he said that were going to take place upon the earth. While at the same time he is cautioning them that these things were not signs, but were going to be characteristic of the ages until the time of the end. In fact, he referred to them, he says, these are just the beginning of birth pangs. It's the beginning of that discomfort that says that we're coming to that time. The list is extensive and it's familiar. In fact, it's, he said there'll be many will come in my name and will deceive many. There will be many people who will be teaching false things. There'll be wars and rumors of wars and nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines, he says, notable famines, we might say, and notable earthquakes in various places. You'll be persecuted, you'll be put to death. He said, you'll be hated by all nations because of me. And many will turn away from the faith, he said, betray one another, so apostasy is going to be part of this problem. Many false prophets will come and, and, and deceive many, and he says, and the increase of wickedness, because of it, he said, the love, the agapao, which is the love that's characteristic of his church, will actually begin to grow cold, he said. In other words, the church will lose its fervor and its passion for God. But at the same time he's saying these things, he cautions a calm. He says, see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. And these, he says, are the beginning of birth pangs. But then when he comes to verse 14 in Matthew 24, he gives us the first sign, I think, that would indicate that we are in that end of times. He says, the gospel will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, in saying that, there's a couple things I think we need to keep in mind. First of all, it's the end of time is not, or when he says this is the end, is not a single event in the sense of we've suddenly come to the conclusion of the story, but rather it's the beginning of a, a series of events that will usher in the end, as becomes very clear as you study it more carefully. The Old Testament prophets referred to it as a time of Jacob's trouble, referring to how it would be central to the Jewish people. But also, secondly, this preaching to the whole world and to all nations, I believe, does not necessarily require that every single person is presented with an in-depth gospel message, that every single person doesn't necessarily have to be taken down the Roman road as desirous as that might be, and as an objective, as important that should be for us, it does not necessarily mean that's the case. In fact, today, there is a church that exists in every nation on the planet, including places like North Korea. So the gospel has reached every nation, and that's why I believe that that is an indicator that we are in the end times. Therefore, the next major event that will mark the beginning of the end, I believe, according to Paul, is the great apostasy, which we've made reference to. And last week we talked about how that is happening even as we sit here. But he said in 2 Thessalonians 2, he said, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, which is the rapture of the church, that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Jesus said it again in back in Matthew 24, 10. He said, many will turn away from the faith. This phrase, falling away, is interesting because even the NIV translates it, the rebellion, which is, 
in a linguistic way is technically correct, but I think really doesn't follow the tradition of translation historically. It's the word apostasia. It means a defection from what is biblically true. In other words, it begins to take what the Bible says, and first it begins to distort it, and then it begins to add to it, and then eventually just simply rejects it altogether. But basically, he's speaking of a rise of, of a heretical, aberrant kind of Christianity, a Christianity that is Christian only in name. And this has been one of my concerns over the years because there are a lot of uh, denominations which have drifted far away from biblical Christianity. I mean, they, some of the most major, what we call mainline groups, don't believe Jesus was God. They don't believe he was born of a virgin. They don't believe that he's coming back. They don't believe the Bible's the word of God, can be relied. They don't believe prophecy. They, they have this whole list of things that they've rejected. It's kind of like the guy who says, you know, I love spaghetti. I just can't handle noodles. I mean, <laughs> really, you know, you <laughs> You take the bucatini well out of it, and what's left? Well, that's the whole point. And, and I think that this essentially is what we've been talking about. For in fact, Paul wrote to Timothy in chapter 3 of the second, second letter to him, and he says, For the time will come when men won't put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll be lovers of pleasure, he goes on to say in chapter 4, who, rather than lovers of God. And they'll have a form of godliness, or religiousness, if you will, but they'll deny the very power that a relationship with Christ has to save and to change a person's life. Essentially, they will take away the message of salvation, and Christianity will simply become a ethical way to live your life based upon their definition of ethics. Now, granted, there have always been false forms of Christianity or heresies. We can go back to the very beginnings of the church when the Judaizers began to say that Jesus wasn't enough. Or the Gnostics who later on in kids said that Jesus wasn't a real man, he just appeared to be a man, and because the material world is evil and therefore Christ couldn't have a physical body, to which John writes at great length in 1 John that any man who says that Jesus wasn't born of a, have a body was not of God. The whole idea of Christ becoming incarnate was that he presented his body, said, my body you have prepared for me, he tells us in Hebrews, as a sacrifice. That's the whole issue of the gospel, that Christ died that my sins might be paid for. If he didn't have a body, if he wasn't sinless, and if he didn't die on the cross, then you and I are still in our sins, and Paul said we're without hope. But today we're facing something a bit different. Not indifferent in character, but a difference in degree. Whereas in the past, heresies have always kind of been on the periphery, now they are becoming mainstream. The Bible is no longer the rule of faith to many people, even many Christians. It's just kind of a rough outline, which is open to personal interpretation. Instead, most are, as Ross Duthat in his book, Bad Religion, Ross is an interesting guy. He's a conservative Catholic who is also a writer with the New York Times. I don't know how those two come together, but thank God he's there. But he said they'll be inventing their own versions of what Christianity means. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> They invent their own versions. They'll abandon traditional theology in favor of religions that strokes their egos and indulges our every, or even celebrates, indulges or celebrates our worst impulses. 
distortions, he goes on to say, of traditional Christianity, but not the real thing. You see, instead of challenging the culture, as I said before, increasing the goal of even evangelical churches is find ways of how do we accommodate it? How do we make ourselves more user-friendly, a user-friendly kind of spirituality that draws crowds and turns pastors into celebrities? Richard Niebuhr wrote so many years ago as he saw these trends developing, he said, Who's a Christianity whose God is without wrath, that brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. Christless, crossless Christianity is a Christianity that has no sacrifice and no suffering. You don't have to give up anything and you don't have to go through anything. It's just easy peasy. Go with the flow, abide and glide. It's almost like if I were to write a book, I'd give some crazy title like, Your Best Life Now. You know, just, just to grab one out of the sky. I call it a, a desalinated pseudo-Christian. You know what desalinated means? You've taken the salt out of it. Essentially, truth is being relegated to a lowercase noun that is a matter of a belief and opinion, but certainly not fact. That inclusiveness has replaced holiness as the highest virtue. So that we say it's okay to be gay, it's trendy to be trans. Abortion, divorce, cohabitation are winked at or totally ignored as being too controversial or too off-putting or too unloving or worst of all, too intolerant. This is something that doesn't take a lot of effort to see, but it's happening around us. And I find if there's anything that I take flack for, it's because I say things like this. Because it's, it's offensive to people who want to live the way they live without having to feel the pinch of conviction and conscience because of sin. The third birth pang that he tells us will mark the end times. It's referred to in Ezekiel and Zechariah, the battle of Gog and Magog. This is a battle that says will be happening in the future. Ezekiel 38.8 says it will take place on the mountains of Israel. And the Zechariah identifies the combatants or the attacking forces, he says in Zechariah 12.2, the surrounding peoples. And they will lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. It's interesting when you put it on a map like this. These are the biblical names. Gomer, Meshach, Togarma, Tubal, uh, Persia, Cush, Libya, Phut, and so forth. We look at these names and they're really abstract to us. But if we transfer them into the nations that surround them today, as we'll see on the next slide, which is coming at any moment. Yeah. When you realize that Israel, this little red slice in the middle, is completely surrounded by Muslim countries, all of which have participated in jihad against Israel at one level or another. But the nations that lead this coalition, we're told, were uh, Togarma, which is Turkey, and Iran, which is Persia. Now the question that has come up and has been, you know, for years people are saying, well, we're sure that Russia is involved. And, you know, it's interesting because when the Soviet Union collapsed, then people said, well, no, Russia probably isn't going to be one of the combatants. 
But it's interesting because when you look at all the stands, Kazakhstan, uh, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, and so forth, these stand areas are all Muslim-majority areas within the, the, uh, are within the commonwealth of Russian nations. But it's also interesting to see what's happening in Russia. Russia is suffering a depopulation. They, they're basically, the number of people living in Russia is dropping, not only because they've all moved to Spokane, but... <laughs> You know, it's a good choice. I <laughs> but because uh, of two other factors, one is the dropping birth rate, and secondly, because of the rise of Islam within the Russian boundaries. In fact, Stratford uh, report, which is a, 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 a geopolitical economic uh, newsletter that I subscribe to, they made an interesting comment. They said, ethnic Russian population will decline at a faster rate than Russia's Muslim population. Russia will become less Slavic and Orthodox and more Asian and more Muslim in the coming years. Right now, there's a 70-30 ratio between uh, native Russians and Muslim Russians. But you realize 30% of their population are already identifying themselves with Islam. So it's a fascinating shift. But the objective of these combatants, we're told, is, is really twofold and very simple. The first one is greed. Ezekiel tells us that they ask the question, do you come to plunder and to loot? Do you come to take a spoil? Now we look at that and saying, well, what spoil could you find in Israel? Well, no, one, of the, one of the spoils is that they now possess one of the largest natural gas and oil reserves in the world. They are one of the leading high-tech nations in the world, second only to Silicon Valley. In fact, my iPhone, that was iPhone 10, was actually created in Netanya, just a few miles from Tel Aviv in Israel. So that they are, have the highest number of, of technological startups of any country in the world per capita. They are a country who has amazing creative abilities. They've developed a form of solar desalinization so that they can, they satisfy 80% of their water's needs. Keep in mind, they live in a desert climate. 80% of their water needs are taken right out of the ocean and they do it in an ecologically clean way using solar power rather than uh, oil and coal power like other countries use. But what's really interesting is like, <laughs> it was Arafat who at one point said, we will drive the Israelis into the ocean and we'll make them drink seawater. We kind of chuckle now, well, it, it kind of came to pass. <laughs> <laughs> when you turn on the tap, you're drinking water that has been taken out of the Mediterranean Sea. But secondly, there's an issue of pride, and this may be as big a driving issue. When you have the Muslim culture is a, a honor-based culture, that your honor is more than important than anything. That's why we hear of these fathers killing their daughters because they have dishonored them in some way. It's an honor-based culture. Your honor, your reputation means everything. And you see, one of the problems is the Quran basically says that any lands or territories that were once under Muslim control must be retaken at all costs. That the idea of jihad involves various things, but one of them is waging war, literally war against anybody who not only blasphemes or mocks Islam, but also who has taken over properties. That essentially what we find is a rich, powerful, successful Jewish nation in the Middle East is intolerable to those who are fundamental believers of Islam. 
Now, keep in mind that only about 10% of Muslims are what we would call uh, seriously uh, dedicated jihadists, but many, many more do believe in the Quran in a very literal, literal sense. And if they believe it, then they have to honor this command. It's interesting when you begin to see what were the boundaries of the Muslim empire under the Turks, in fact. It includes Spain, much of Portugal, much of you know, countries like Bulgaria and, and uh, all, much of the Eastern European countries. The belief is that those countries should again one day be reincorporated into the uh, growing global caliph. And have no mistake about it, when you look at Islam, you have to understand that their objective, their theology teaches them taking over the entire world. And instead of doing it through preaching the message, which they will do, but they also believe it's done by the sword. I'm not making that up, that's their theology. Now, I have some Muslims saying, well, I don't believe that's what the Quran teaches. And I said, well, then you haven't read, have you? Yet despite the overwhelming numbers of this force that comes against Israel, in fact, Ezekiel said, it's like a cloud that will cover the land. The invasion, we're told, will fail miserably. In fact, he says, you shall fall upon the mountains of Israel. And although the destruction that comes is from the hand of God, he says, I will execute judgment. There are many elements in this that parallel what could be actually a nuclear conflict because he says, I will send fire on Magog and those who live in safety and in the coastlands. It's quite interesting, and I'll share with you in a moment why I think the, the, that could be a, a factor in all of this. But once this battle is finished, and it's gonna be decisive in its, its completion, the long-term effects of this defeat will lead to numerous changes, not only in the Middle East, but I believe will end, happen worldwide. But I also believe that at this point is when the church is caught up. When Paul makes the statement to the Thessalonians again, he said the restraining power will prevent him from being revealed until the proper time, until that restraining power is removed. The debate has been for centuries, what is the restraining power? Who is the restrainer? And it's interesting the way that it's written because the first time he uses it, it's in a neuter, and the second time it's used in the masculine. And essentially, as people have cast about for an idea, most people have concluded that the restrainer, the thing that's holding back, back, ultimately has to be God in the person of the Holy Spirit of God. That the Holy Spirit of God is going to restrain him, but I think we can take it even a little bit further. Because again, Jesus said the church is the salt of the earth, it is the light of the world, and I believe that God takes the church, which is filled with the Holy Spirit, the true church, the Holy Spirit-empowered church, I believe, is taken out of the way, and that will open the door. There will no longer be a restraining influence of the church, which really takes me back to what I opened with today, that the church has an ability to restrain evil within a culture. History proves that over and over again, even within our own nation, as we've seen seasons of great outpourings of the Holy Spirit, a whole direction and, and destination, if you will, of a country has been changed and altered, turned from godlessness, turned back to godliness. 
In fact, my own generation was part of what was called the Jesus People Revival, and most students of revivals say it very clearly was because as Dr. Orr, Edmund Orr said, who was the leading authority on revivals while he was still alive, he said revivals are misnamed. He said it's the idea of bringing back to life something that's dead. He says no, it's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit designed by God to raise up a whole new generation of leaders. And we see that historically. We see it in our own generation that I would bet 95% of the pastors who are serving in pulpits around this country today came to Christ because of that great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But our generation is passing off the scene. I just celebrated my birthday yesterday. I didn't get your gift yet. but. <laughs> and I thought, here I am. I'm 146 years age. But it's interesting to see as that generation moves away and being replaced by another generation, many of them who do not hold the same convictions and commitments to the word of God that those of us who got saved in that revival did. I believe that the taking away of the restrainer is going to, is referring to the rapture of the church, at which point I feel the beast will free, feel completely free to assert his authority and to give rise to a one world system that we've been talking about, deals with one world government, one world economy, and one world religion. But there are seven events that I basically feel are going to happen at this, as a result of the Battle of Gog and Magog. First of all, I think that Islam is going to be diminished, if not altogether discredited. This will be its great effort to destroy the little Satan, which they call Israel, and they will be destroyed in turn, and the power of those kingdoms will be broken. There will be a drive because of the conflict for world peace and global governance on a level that we've never seen before. That essentially, as I talked about last week, that the nuclear age gave rise to the, the, the terror of total conflagration and discovery, destruction of the earth, that therefore these major leaders that we've talked about over the last several decades have pushed towards a global government, many of them even being our own presidents. But this will amp it up quite a bit. And it's always a question people have, well, where does America figure in all of this? And that's a good question because we're not mentioned. We assume that we always would be. But as a country ourselves, we are on a very thin edge that we literally, as we push our, our indebtedness to $22 trillion, that this year we'll spend $1.3 trillion more than we will bring in in taxes, and the debt keeps on growing, there's a number of factors, and we'll get more into this next week and talking about where this could end up. But the whole point is that we could be reduced to a minor player in world events, which is unthinkable to most of us. But also we find that there is a rise, a, a, a basically a revival of Orthodox Judaism, which is actually happening right now. When he says to them in, in Ezekiel, the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord God. Even though they defeat this enemy, they realize it was the hand of God that brought them this victory. That fourthly, Jerusalem will become the new global capital. And many of you are sitting back going, how in the world could that ever happen? Well, there's some things that most people don't realize. The original status of the city of Jerusalem, when Israel was made a nation, 
the UN General Assembly Resolution number 194, read it up, maintained the position that Jerusalem would be forever known as an international city under United Nations supervision. Now, Jordan wasn't willing to allow that to happen, um, and Israel is not willing to allow that to happen, but somehow it happens. When it says that the, that the Antichrist will confirm a covenant with Israel for seven years, it's my wonder if somehow that becomes part of the agreement. Remove the animosity and the antipathy that exists because Israel controls the holy mountain and controls the religious sites, most important religious sites of the three major world religions. But it's interesting, you may think again it's far-fetched, but <laughs> Anthony Sigleski, who is, uh, writes for the Daily Record, uh, wrote a whole article on how this should work out. How do we bring an end to this endless conflict? And listen to what he said. He said, Jerusalem is arguably the most important city in the world. It is certainly the most controversial and the most fought over city in the world, which is kind of interesting because most of its history, Jerusalem is kind of a, a backwater. It's not on a main route. It's not on a, a seacoast. And yet it has been attacked 52 times. It has been captured 44 times. It has been besieged some 23 different times. And twice it's been destroyed. But he says, political representatives of each of the three religions have fought to get their turns governing Jerusalem. And then he adds, one option is to declare Jerusalem an international city that should be controlled, governed, and policed by the United Nations. That is, in the eyes of the United Nations, the legal status of Jerusalem right now. And part of their argument, when Jerusalem wants to make it their capital, in the back of their heads they're saying, well, that's not right because the UN, which created Israel, is the real one who should be in control of Jerusalem. But fifthly, we find that the beast will rise to world leadership. And I talked at length a couple of weeks ago about the United Nations and how that all fits together in my mind. But most importantly, lastly, that the temple in Jerusalem will be built. And the reason we know that is because Jesus makes reference to it, Paul makes reference to it, that in the end time there is a temple on the Temple Mount in which the beast can place his image and declare himself to be God. In fact, the term that's used for that in Daniel and in Matthew 24 is the, the abomination that causes things to become desolate. I believe that the Battle of Gog and Magog will be the thing that will initiate really the beginning of this one world government and one world religion, and I, don't, I can't even begin to outline what the details might be. But as I noted last week, that this one world religion is going to be a man-centered religion. It's going to be all-inclusive, amoral, focused on social justice and world peace and climate change, as opposed to spirituality. You see, there's a real distinction between those two. I mean, the Bible says that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, body, blah, 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 and we're to love the Lord as ourself. No, yes. Love our neighbor as ourselves, excuse me. I mean, that's very clear that we have, we have this responsibility to God, and we have this ethical responsibility to people around us but none of that becomes the focal point. In the man-powered religion, it's focused upon how we can meet our own needs. And the survival of the race of mankind becomes the most important issue. In fact, the Na National Council 
of churches in their semi-centennial made an interesting statement about their objectives. They says they're seeking to build a richly diverse community of many faiths, Protestant, Orthodox, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, and more, a perfect microcosm of God's world. It's interesting. You're called the Council of Churches, and yet you're saying, but includes many that are not churches, not Christian. That's our ultimate goal is to bring them together. But you see, this one world religion that will come on the scene will only survive for three and a half years, according to Revelation, because at the midpoint of the tribulation, following the completion of this temple, which I assume will cover that first three and a half years, that the beast, it says, sets up himself, it sets an image of himself in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Daniel 9.27 says, in the middle, the, that is speaking of the beast, will put up an end to sacrifice and offering in the temple in Jerusalem. And on a wings of a temple, he will set up an abomination that causes or leads to desolation. And Jesus said in Matthew 24.15, when you see the abomination, see standing in the holy place, that means the holiest of holies, the most sacred part of the temple sanctuary. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing in the holy place spoken of through the prophet Daniel let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains now one of the I think misinterpretations of the passage that we opened with today is they see the woman who's pregnant with a child and we think well that must be Mary uh, actually it's a reference to Israel it was the nation of Israel that God revealed to Joseph who had the sun and the moon and the stars all around her, not Mary. And it was Israel that essentially gave birth to a man-child that would rule over the nations. And it is Israel at this moment in time who is told to flee. In fact, it says, again, we read in, in verse, uh, verse chapter 12, the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. The place prepared for her in the desert out of the serpent's reach. Now I've had many people say, isn't that Petra in, in Jordan that, had, that they're, they're heading away? In fact, one uh, book, the Gideons, actually sought to store thousands of Bibles in, in uh, Petra so that when the Jews fled there, they would be able to have the scriptures at hand, particularly New Testament. The problem is, is that uh, I've been to Petra and it's no secret hiding place. <laughs> I just tell you that. I remember a little story, a little side story here, just to add some color to those of you who are drifting off. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we, when we went from Israel, we had to get onto a Jordanian bus with a Jordanian guide and then a Jordanian policeman accompanying us, which wasn't very comforting. <laughs> we went to some sites and they would have armed guards guiding the pathway in, which was <laughs> interesting. You think they might not like us. Anyway, but I remember the guide took us to the entrance, uh, the, the walkway that goes into the mountains, and he says, oh, just walk there and you'll come to the end. Just follow it and just walk all the way and you'll come to the end. And then he disappeared, and, uh, and I don't think he was raptured. And so we get to the very end. You can't go any further as you're walking around. This is a rather amazing site. It certainly is a World Heritage Site. But we get to the very end. I'm thinking, now, so what do we do now? And all of a sudden, I see this taxi cab coming down the side of the hillside back and forth, and it comes all the way down, drives up, the door opens, and our guide gets out. <laughs> I thought, talking about a secret place in the desert, if you can take a taxi there, it's not very secret. 
I don't know what that place is, but I, I, I would venture to say it's not going to be something quite so obvious. But it's interesting because what happens with that three and a half years? Well, Zechariah tells us this in Zechariah 12.10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Is this what Paul meant when he wrote in Romans 11, when the full number of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved? Because there's strong indication, I think, in the book of Revelation that by the middle of the tribulation or the last three and a half years of the tribulation, there will not be conversions. I think there will be people getting saved the first three and a half years, not in the last three and a half years. And I'll point that out to you in a minute. So it is that God says in the end he'll save all Israel. And I wonder if it is the disillusion of having been able to rebuild their temple and suddenly thinking they can revive their sacrificial and orthodox worship of God that suddenly the Antichrist deceives them, puts his image in the temple and declares that he is God and that the dragon is God and that they should be worshipped as God. That those who are orthodox in their faith will immediately recognize the deception, and his, Jesus' advice, Revelation's advice is that they flee. Jesus said, when you see this, you which are in Judea, flee to the mountains. It's at this moment that Satan steps out behind the, the curtain and fully reveals himself. He unveils himself. He is no longer going to be a shadowy figure. He is going to be declared as God himself. It says in Revelation 13, verse 4, men worship the dragon and they also worshiped the beast. And for 42 months, again, three and a half years, he blasphemes God, slanders his name in his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. So for three and a half years, he suddenly reaches the goal. He always wanted to be worshiped as God. Now we find not this kind of Anton LaVey pseudo-Satanism, but full-blown, open, out in the open, unvarnished Satanism literally worshiping Satan as the only true God and the beast as the only true mouthpiece for him. As proof that people have truly committed themselves and are worshiping the dragon and the beast, they are required to pledge allegiance by receiving a mark. Revelation 13, receiving a mark on his right hand and on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark. And all who refuse to worship the image will be killed and no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark. We'll talk about that next week. I'll tell you exactly what it is. Okay, I'll let you in. It's a mark. But it's also at this midpoint when the mark of the beast is instituted so that some of you don't have to worry about your credit cards for a while, that it's instituted that essentially it's done as a expression of devotion to Satan and that you are a worshiper of his. And then what follows is what's called the seven last plagues. In Matthew 24, 21, Jesus put it this way, he says, for then there will be great distress, actually the word distress is the word thlipsis, 
It's what's often translated tribulation. It's where we get great distresses. In the King James was translated as great tribulation. And so there comes a term. A tribulation or a distress, he says, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. In other words, it's the worst of the worst. Revelation 15 says, I saw another, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. As they each pour out their bowl of judgments upon the earth, the residents of the earth will come under the full wrath of God. And the list of things is really amazing. He says that ugly, literally foul and loathsome and painful sores broke out on the people. And every living thing in the sea died, and the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. The sun and the, and, the, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire, and they were seared by an intense heat, and men gnawed their tongues in agony. I wonder if this is global warming. <laughs> Sounds like it to me. I'll come back later. And you would think that in the face of such torment that people would fall down and repent, and yet it says they cursed the name of God and refused to repent. It says it twice. They cursed the name of God and they refused to repent. Well, this all comes to a conclusion, again, after three and a half years. That's why the last three and a half years are often referred to as the Great Tribulation as in contrast to the Tribulation period in general. But it ends with a great battle called the Battle of Armageddon. And in the midst of that battle, this battle between the kings of the east and the armies of the beast meet in the Valley of Armageddon. Literally, the Armageddon is an anglicized form of the the Hebrew Har-Megedon, which means the mountain of Megiddo. There's a large valley there, and we may get a chance to speak about that further. But it concludes, the tribulation period concludes with this, as they're waging this battle, Christ appears in the heavens with the saints and destroys the armies and casts the beasts and the dragon into the lake of fire or excuse me, into, into bondage. The beast and the false prophet and the lake of fire and, the, and Satan is bound for a thousand years, which marks the thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. And many people don't realize that after all of these events, Christ is going to literally reign as king upon the earth and it says the saints will reign with him for a thousand years, after which Satan will be released and once again lead a rebellion and that will be the conclusion. And then starts the real story of our life, a new heaven, and a new earth. But as I said, I, I called this message Satanism simply because after all these millennia of Satan striving and manipulating and conniving of ways to make himself the central article of worship, and it's failed all over time, not only because I think God has restrained him, but also because he says, do not be over much wicked lest you perish before your time. The reality is that when Satan begins to control lives and communities and whole nations, it reaches a level where they literally poison themselves on their own toxin and the culture is destroyed. We saw it with Germany at the end of World War II, the utter destruction that came as a result. And it's been that case throughout human history. 
But this will be the end, the final conflict, the end of those things where Satan, as I said, gets what he's always wanted, to be worshiped by all that are living upon the earth, and yet he is destroyed in a moment, and his kingdom is destroyed in a moment. As the Revelation says later on, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. That great whore Babylon has fallen. And that brings us to the end of the story. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as I've gone through these things today that it would not be confusing, but even if it is God, it would begin to motivate us to read our Bibles and to prayerfully seek to understand these things. Your word that we've referenced over and over again was simply that we need to be watching and we need to be ready because even though we do not know when that final culmination will happen and we don't know where we will be or even where our nation will be in that moment, yet God, it's important that you said to lift up your eyes for redemption comes from on high. Help us to live in the anticipation of eternity and and not to be bogged down in the constant pursuits of pleasure and power and things in this present world. But that, God, we would be faithful servants who would follow you. That we would just commit ourselves to being the followers of Jesus in this dark world. We do pray for our nation, Lord. We pray for our leaders. We pray, God, that there would be a move of your spirit in the land that would turn people back away from wickedness and to the light and to the truth of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, as your church to not forsake our duty to be salt and light, that you would anoint each of us with a certain boldness and courage not to be rude and overly assertive, but not being afraid to speak the truth in love, not be afraid to call people to repentance, not be afraid to call sin, sin, just because that sin happens to be popular in Hollywood at the moment. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.